Thanks, guys. If you've got a Bible handy or a device that you'd like to turn on your Bible app, if you turn it to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah's in the Old Testament. It's one of the major prophets. That's the way we call them, not because they're more important than other prophets, just because they wrote more. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they wrote lots, and uh, the, other, the others didn't write as much, so we call them the minor prophets. I'm sure that'll get worked out in heaven, and they'll um, voice their grievance over that. Uh, but until that day, it is what it is. Uh, so, uh, Jeremiah 29, so we're taken from last week, we got started, and then we're taken until the beginning of Advent, or the, or the four Sundays preceding Christmas, to talk through this concept of, like, of, of reimagining, reimagining um, this church in particular. And, and the reason for that, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons, not, not the least of which being that, you know, uh, you've, you've got a new pastor, and that transitions like that kind of, kind of uh, welcome that kind of opportunity. The other is just, you know, over time... Any, any church, any organization, any, any, of, any group of people over time can, can begin to uh, lose our focus. And that can happen for a number of reasons. Some of it is because of we, we, we find very good things to go after that may or may not be the things that God wants us to do, but they're very good. Right? Some of it may just be because... Um, you know, this church is 30 years old. We, we do things over and over and over again, and sometimes it, it just gets a little boring. And so every once in a while, it's important for us to go back to the Scriptures to kind of have our imaginations um, refilled, revived, so that we can understand what it is that we're doing here. And so uh, last week we began with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, looking at uh, our first week of what it is, what is the task that we are called to as a church? What is our mission? Uh, and we're t spending this week, we're, we're still on that. What is our mission? Because the mission of the church is, is um, and it's, it's a really, really big mission. And then next week, we're going to finish it up, and then, and then we'll go into other parts of what the church is supposed to be. But this week, we look specifically at this passage, this letter, in fact, a letter sent by Jeremiah to God's people, um, and what it is that God calls them to do in really their everyday lives. So, if you have your place in Jeremiah 29, would you stand in honor of God's word? We're going to read verses 4 to 7. This is God's word to us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you told a parable of soils and seed. 
And that seed you said was the word of God. And when it was sown, the difference between the results had to do with the soil. And you, oh God, are our gardener. And so we ask that you would make our hearts into good soil this morning. That the word of God might take deep root in it and might bring forth a huge harvest. We can't do this on our own. We can't even change our mood, better yet our heart. So help us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and just open us to Jesus and his gospel this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So over the last probably 15 to 20 years, uh, one of the buzzwords that's made its way through, um, through kind of churchy circles is this word missional. We did not set it up. John used it in his prayer. It was not a setup, I, I promise you. But this word missional is, uh, has been kind of everywhere. And the problem is, is that it, like any other buzzword, buzzwords tend to be things that we use a lot and lots of people appropriate, but nobody really agrees on what they mean, right? So for some people to be missional means to be um, evangelistic, purely evangelistic. And so to be missional is, is to go and share the gospel with people. For others, to be missional is to purely do good in the community. So your life group would be a missional one if you, know, you guys volunteered regularly at a, at a, you know, a homeless shelter or, or something of that nature. Others, though, use um, missional to just simply describe the practice of just hanging around with people who don't believe what you believe, Right? Missional then becomes um, being with the kinds of people Jesus would be with. You see the problem, right? We can all say that we're missional and none of us agree on what exactly that means. But it really does come down to what you think the mission is. Because that's what being missional is. It's just being on a mission. And, and that's why we're taking three weeks to look at the mission of the church. Because if we're going to reimagine the church. We need to be very clear on what the mission is. And in Jeremiah 29, God gives us a vision that is way bigger than anything we could imagine. As always, there's an outline in your worship guide if you want to use that. But to get started, I, I need us to understand some context here. Because my, my guess is the vast majority of us, um, when we hear this letter or even see it in Jeremiah 29, have no idea what's going on. And that's, that's listen, there's no, that's not a shameful thing. It's just, it's just true. And so what I need to do for a few minutes is be a little more teachy than preachy. And we're going to get into the context of what's going on when, when Jeremiah, or, or the Lord rather, says to the exiles that I have sent into exile, let's look at what that means, okay? So... Oh, one of the images got clipped off. No big deal. All right, so let me take us back a little bit. No, no, put it, back, oh, put it back up. You don't have to take it off, Patrick. I was pointing out something that I did wrong when I made this, not, not something you do, buddy. So anyway, about 1,000 B.C., there's a guy, apparently, you know, we, we all kind of, in our children's Bibles, show him as this scrawny little dude named David, uh, of David and Goliath fame, takes the throne in Israel. And at the time, he, he unites all 12 tribes as, as the second king, uh, the first king being Saul, but the second king of 
Israel. And so David takes the throne. Um, he solidifies the rule, begins expanding things. David uh, has a bunch of kids because he's got a bunch of wives that God said was probably not a good idea, but he did it anyway because that's what kings do in the ancient world. And so around 970 BC, David dies and his, one of his sons, not his oldest son, that's a tragic story. You can, you can read about that. But one of his sons by the name of Solomon takes the throne. And, and if you know anything about the Bible, you probably have heard the name Solomon and you equate it with someone who's very wise. And that's because Solomon, um, as, as God was um, kind of laying out the fact that he was going to take the throne, God asked him, he, he offered him in fact, he said, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I need wisdom to be able to govern your people. God was very impressed with that. Solomon started well. He did not end well, but he started well. So Solomon still is the king over all of, all of the 12 tribes, and, and in fact, his land begins to expand as well. It's a time of, of prosperity, wealth, um, success on the war front. Everything's going well for Israel. And then in 930, uh, Solomon dies, and his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. Now, Rehoboam uh, was not like his father. Rehoboam's a young man when he takes the throne. And so as he's taking the throne, uh, a bunch of representatives of God's people, they, they come and they, they stand before him and they say, hey, your dad taxed us and put us into service for his, his civil service projects a lot. Can you just ease the burden a little bit? Right? Sounds like a good idea. Change of administration, maybe a little change of taxation. No one's, no one's going to like, you know, think that's terrible. So, so uh, you know, Rehoboam being a young man, he, he, he goes back and he says, well, let me think about it. And he gets with his father's advisors, and his father's advisors say, you know, they, they have a point. It, this is, in fact, like, your dad was really hard on them. It would probably be good to ease the burden a little bit. The people would love you for it, and it would be good. And Rehoboam, again, being a young man, looks at all of his father's advisors and thinks, these old guys don't know anything. So he goes to his buddies, and he says, what do you all think we should do? He says, I'll tell you what we need to do. They need to know that you're twice the man your daddy was. And then anything that your dad did, we're gonna, they need to know who's in charge of this place. They don't get to tell you what to do. You're the king, not them. And he said, you know you're right. So he goes out and he says, let me tell you something about my debt. I'm twice the man my father was. He put this kind of burden on you. I'm putting this much on you. And it, it's more. And they go, okay, peace out. We got another king now. And from that point on, you have two kingdoms in Israel. You have the northern kingdom, which remain, retains the name Israel. And that, that involves all of the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin. Then you have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, and that's Judah and Benjamin. David's kids still reign over the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is reigned over first by a, by a guy who has a notorious name in the Old Testament. His name is Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which sounds terrible, and it is terrible. He is, he is seen as the epitome of all that is bad when it comes to kings, okay? So, you have two kingdoms, and they go their separate ways, and they do separate things. The northern kingdom never quite gets it right. They are bad from day one. Jeroboam, to solidify his power, 
doesn't want his people going to Jerusalem to worship. So he does what any good Israelite would do, and he creates two golden calves and puts one on one mountain and one on another and says, you can worship wherever you want, just go to the golden cows. And people think, sounds good to me, right? Okay, so uh, they never go well. And the, the, the southern kingdom has good kings and bad kings. The northern kingdom, they're all bad, all bad, all the time. So they begin turning away from God early. And as they're turning away from God, God sends them prophets, many prophets, major and minor, in fact, uh, sends them to, to Israel to get them to repent. And it never seems to take root. It never happens. So God warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them. Like If you keep going down this road, things are going to go bad, and they're going to get progressively worse. Until finally, he says, listen, if you don't stop, I'm taking you into exile. I'm going to take you away from the land of promise. I'm going to take you away from the place where my special presence dwells. I'm going to take you away from everything that I promised your forefathers because you are just abandoning me. And so, um, you, you have the beginning of this happening in 734 B.C. In 734 B.C., now this is going to get confusing, so, so just stick with me because you have to be very precise. I have to be very precise on this. Syria and Israel form a group. They form a kind of coalition to rise up against what is the large world-spanning empire of the day, which is Assyria. Syria, Assyria, different people, okay? And, and they say, we're going to stand up to him. And they, they, they tell Judah that he has to do it. There's a bunch in, in the book of Isaiah, especially in chapter 9 about this. I'll let you go back and read that sometime later. But they garner the attention of Assyria. And Assyria is a big, bad, world-spanning empire of the day. And so eventually, Assyria says, okay, we're not doing this. You can't rise up against me. This is not the way this works. And a king by the name of Sennacherib comes down and in 722 BC lays waste to all of Israel, including their capital of Samaria, and takes them into exile. What we mean by that is all the, all the people, the way the Assyrians would do it when they conquered you, they would take out all of your people, they would move them someone else, somewhere else, and they would move other people into your land. Why? Because you're far more likely to fight for your homeland than someone else's. And we don't want you to fight for it. So that's what they would do. And from that time going forward, and as far as the scriptures are concerned, you never hear from the ten, those ten tribes of Israel ever again. They are gone. Now, like I said, Judah had good kings and bad kings, and Sennacherib, he wasn't content with just taking over Israel, so he actually goes all the way down to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem had a king by the name of Hezekiah at the time, and Hezekiah was wise enough to know that he is not strong enough to beat Assyria, but that God is, and so repented, and God uh, laid waste to the Assyrian army. They go back home and never come back to Judah. So good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings in Judah, still going on. But then, eventually, uh, there was a series of bad kings in Judah, and God, again, is sending his prophets, the last of which being Jeremiah, to continually come to his people and say, you've got to stop Please turn away from these idols, turn away from false uh, beliefs, return to me, return to me, return to me, or I'm going to have to take you into exile. And sure enough, 601 BC, the new world-spanning empire, an empire by the name of Babylon, 
comes in and sacks Jerusalem for the first time. They would do so three times, 601, 593, and then finally in 586, in which they destroy the temple of God, lay waste to the city, and take God's people into exile. This letter is written from the pen of Jeremiah to the first series of exiles who had been taken out of their homes. And when I say out of their homes, we need to understand something. When the Babylonians exiled you, when they took you off as prisoners of war, they didn't do so in carriages and with fanfare and it was all nice and warm. Literally, to humiliate you as a defeated people, they would put a fish hook through your nose and tie a rope to it, and you would all go in a long string as you marched to the northeast to Babylon. So God sends this letter to his people. Now that you're in exile, how are you supposed to be? That's Israel's exile. I, I do want to make one more point to this. Because this is very easy for us, especially in our traditions. What sent God's people into exile was not that they sinned a little. We need to understand, and, and I know, listen, I know most of us don't really get into the Old Testament enough to, to really dig in and understand what's going on, especially because you have the historical books and they're giving you kind of the bullet points of things. Then you get into the prophets and we're not entirely, you know, if you're just reading the Bible and you don't have a class or someone telling you, you don't know where the prophets fit in all this. And there's so many of them and where do they all fit. But we need to understand how bad it was, what it was that finally got God to go, I, this is enough. You need to understand that not only were people going like, you know, I'm, I'll worship God and I'll worship Baal. We'll do the same thing. Or I'll worship God and I'll worship Asherah. What we're talking about is the people of God had set up not only idols in God's temple, but they were doing temple prostitution in God's temple. Right? You want to worship a fertility god like Baal or Asherah and you want the you, in the ancient world, you, you want the, the crops to grow? You, wanna, you, you want this kind of thing? Well, you visit the temple. And you go to the people that are at the temple and you do what their profession does. That's how you would worship. And that was going on in the temple of God. This is not a speeding ticket. right? It's not like God, you're doing, sorry, you're doing us. 75 and a 65, exile. Like this is, this is treason. Okay? But that exile was only a picture of a greater one. Because in Genesis 3.23, God, this, this, this exile is not the first time God has had to exile. In Genesis 3, when we had broken the world, God, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, he says, uh, where are you? And then he talks to them and finds out what's going on. And, and in fact, in Genesis 3.23, we are told that God has to exile our first parents, exile Adam and Eve, exile humanity from this place that they had been put of perfect provision, perfect relationship with God, everything being lined up exactly as it was supposed to, and they are exiled to the east, awaiting a redemption that God had promised would come. Right? 
And if you're a Christian here, you know probably that that's what Jesus came to do, was to to bring that redemption. And this is why uh, Jesus, one of the things that, as he kind of talks about his work, there's there's this great moment in, the, in Luke's gospel. It's in the other gospels too, but we'll just use Luke. In Luke's gospel where he goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, his three closest buddies. And they're up on a mountain and it says that Jesus is transfigured before them. And what, what that means is like some of the glory that is due Jesus, God says, I'm going to give you a sneak preview. Boom! And he's like shining and glowing and it's amazing. And, and apparently Moses and Elijah show up, which is totally weird and none of the disciples know what to do with it Peter especially just starts talking doesn't really know what he's saying talks about building tents and all this stuff it's like just doesn't know what he's doing it's freaking out he's freaking out it's what he's doing and and it says that they uh, Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus about his upcoming and our translations say departure but the original word is exodus because that's how Israel, that's how God's people understood what was going to happen to bring them out of exile. They were to need another exodus. So Jesus is coming to, to end that. And he does with his resurrection. He brings about a, a foretaste of this, of this world that we were made for, of this perfect provision of sinless life. But, but even with Jesus' resurrection, our exile is not fully ended, is it? Steve's, uh, the assurance that Steve read this morning the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We're not there yet. And this is why uh, Peter, again, being, being uh, you know, at, I'm guessing over time he, he was able to get some control over um, his kind of reckless speaking. But in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, when he's writing his letter to some churches, one of the, the way that he calls the church, us, he calls us, exiles why because we're not home yet we're still in a land that is foreign we're still residents of a land that we weren't made for and so that means that when we look at what jeremiah is writing here to god's people in exile we need to see that this has every bit to do with us as it does and it did to them okay all right now Let's look at the letter. We'll go back from teaching to preaching. All right, here we go. So let's look at the letter. Look down at verse 4 in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, let's begin with the most, uh, the most obvious thing, and that's that God is directing this letter. But it's not just God. He names himself very specifically, right? Lord of hosts in, in our translation. Now it says Lord in all capital letters. And if you ever see that in the Old Testament, that means that it is a way that we translate God's, a particular name of God. Yahweh, his covenant name, which is to say the name that he gives to his people that remind them of the promises that he has made to redeem, to rescue the world, and to do so through them. So he is still the covenant God, but it says of hosts. Now, you know, there, back in the 90s, there were, the, there were like people wrote songs all the time about the different names of God, right? Uh, I won't sing Jehovah Jireh. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. No, I'm not going to do it. So um, 
He said, uh, he, but God has a bunch of ways that he describes himself. Lord of hosts is per, a particular name, and it means the commander of the heavenly armies. That's what it means. So when he calls himself the Lord of hosts, he means the God, the covenant God, their God, who has not ceased to be their God, who controls the very armies of heaven. Why is that a big deal? Because in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, when you lost to another nation, it wasn't just that you lost, it was that your God lost too. In fact, everyone kind of saw it that way, that, if, that if, you, if you were fighting, if we were going and fighting, it was because our God is rising up and doing war with us. And then if you lost, it's because your God was not as strong as our God. So for the Israelites to go into exile, for the, the, all these people to, to be carried off by Babylon, the assumption would have been that not only were their armies insufficient, which clearly they were, but that their God was too. And that he got beat up just as bad as they got beat up. And so God is saying that in fact that is not the case. You think I lost. I didn't lose. And that's made clear as you keep going. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who? Who's? Who sent them into exile? Because I'm pretty sure it was Nebuchadnezzar. I'm pretty sure Nebuchadnezzar was the one who came down and took them and dragged them off. And God is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. That little dude did not kick me off my throne. This is not happening because I'm weak or, or somehow have been defeated or, or my plan has been usurped by terrible circumstances. This is happening because I am sending you into exile. I told you this was going to happen, and now it is. And it's not because I got beat. It's because I am the Lord. Babylon may be the instrument, but I'm the artisan. I'm the artist, right? This is huge. Their exile is not a mistake. This is not something that kind of came up out of the blue that God didn't see coming. The state of the world around them is not because God is losing. It was because God has a specific plan for them. And it involved being in Babylon. Now, one more thing before I hop off of that. And that's simply this. For those of you who, who, um, who love to kind of look and see how all this fits together. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter 20, 28, there is a list. And that list is, is, is what uh, is called, and, and a lot of scholars will call the list of blessings and curses. And it's basically God saying, okay, so if you keep my covenant, here are the things that are good that are going to come of it. And if you break it, here are the things that are going to go that are bad. And, and the list of curses, which sounds really awful, but it's just the way you talked about things back then, are a list of what we would call disciplines. They start really minor, and they run the gamut until they get to the worst possible thing you can imagine. Remember, this is, this is during Moses' era. And, you know, they go from like, hey, your crops aren't, are, you're going to have a bad harvest one year. 
And that's going to be a sign like, hey, you guys need to return to me. And then it just gets progressively worse until finally it comes to exile. Not only is God in control of this, this is the very thing God said would happen if you keep down this road. Okay? So, how are you supposed to live? How do you, how do you live if you're, in, if you're in exile? Because you have been ripped from your home, you've been ripped from your property, you've been ripped from your, your temple and your, your religious worship, and now you've been placed in a place that is utterly antagonistic towards you, towards your God, towards everything that you know. So how are you supposed to live? Well, God tells them. Look down at verse 5. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Build, plant, and eat. What does this mean? Well, first and foremost, it means settle in. This ain't going to be over overnight, right? Took you several hundred years to get in this position. It's not going to take you a week to get out of it, okay? So in in one sense, that's what it's meaning. But we have to understand when it's talking about building, uh, that that has to do with settling in, making sure that you're, you're a part of this thing now. You're not going anywhere anytime soon, even though there were false prophets telling them they were planting and eating. Planting, you have to understand, the ancient world is not simply about providing for your needs physically. That's your income. That's investment. To build, plant, eat means to be productive, to make yourselves at home, as opposed to kind of gathering yourselves in a little uh, you know, ghetto and hoping that it'll be over soon. Go, be a part of this. He keeps going. Verse 6. Take wives, have sons, take daughters, or have take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, they may bear sons. Multiply there and do not decrease. Okay? What, this is important. He's telling them two things. God is saying, one, be fruitful. So increase, multiply. And two, he's telling them to stay who they are. In other words, don't become Babylonians. Multiply, increase, make more children of the covenant. Be more of the covenant people. Multiply, increase the covenant people. Don't become Babylonians. You are there, live there, work there, invest there, but do not become them. And if he just stopped there, we would get to every evangelical option for living in the world. Go Make yourself a little community that's set off from everybody else. Multiply yourselves. Maybe get what you can out of the world, but know that that's all this is. You getting. But then we get verse 7. He says this. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. Now, welfare is a very difficult translation for us of that word for a bazillion reasons, not least because of the political climate, okay? The word uh, in some of your translations is peace. That's not very helpful either because peace to us just means not fighting, That's not what it meant to Jewish people, right? In the Old Testament, the concept of peace or shalom, which we've already sung about this morning already, is not just about not being hostile or having hostilities. See, when God made the world, he didn't make it mechanical, he made it relational. 
And that meant that the way that we were created and the way we were meant to be in the world is one where all of our relationships lined up perfectly. Relationship with God, relationships with each other, a relationship to the, the world and the creation, even our relationship with ourselves. And the way that they would talk about this is shalom. That's what shalom is. It's living in a way, that this is what Jesus was talking about when he came and said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He didn't mean more of it. <laughs> it's like, you need more life than you have now. You have life, but I want to give you, he meant it was qualitative. Shalom, true life, the life you were made for. What in many times we now call flourishing. What does it mean for us to flourish? It means having all of our relationships lined up exactly the way they were meant to line up. So he tells them, so that's, that's what shalom is, but then he says to seek it, to pray for it, and in it you will find it. These are active words. These, these imply that we're asking you to do something, God's people. We're asking you to like, be not just passive in this event. This is something for you to go do. This is a mission. You're to seek that, the flourishing. You're to, to pray for it. Which again, for most of us in an evangelical context, we assume that means us. Seek the flourishing of your religious community. Pray for it, that we would flourish, right? Because that's great. But that's not what he says. He says, seek the flourishing, seek the shalom of the city that I have sent you to? What city is that? Babylon? The, the fishhook guys? The people who killed my neighbor? Possibly... I'm not just pop, abused everyone in any way you can imagine. I'm going to try and be sensitive for little ears. The people who hate me and my God, the people who want nothing for me except my humiliation, who, who lined up outside of the city as we were being led in and laughed at me. People who mock my God all the time. You want me to seek their flourishing? You want me to seek their shalom? You want me to see Babylon flourish? Are you out of your mind? What is amazing about this is that there's no explanation. God doesn't seem to, he feels no need to explain it. I'm sending you here. I'm sending you here. And your purpose while you are here is to seek the lining up as best you can of the relationships of this godless, evil place I have sent you. Who's in? And then he says that in there welfare and their shalom you will find shalom now 
with all due respect to uh, former President Kennedy, this is not about the rising tide lifting all boats. What he means by that, what God is saying in that, is that you will flourish as you are seeking to see others flourish because that is what you were made for. In their flourishing, you will find your own. Now, let me speak in a more applied manner, if I can. And I want to start with, with seeking or even defining what this flourishing really is. Because you see, this is where all these different definitions of mission will really deviate. What does it mean for people to flourish? What does it mean? Again, we have to understand as we get into this that we're talking about life as God intended it for us. And I think there's not a person in this room whether you're Christian or not, whether you buy all this or you think I'm just a raving lunatic, who doesn't know that this, like our normal experience, it's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? This is why in our culture today, our political discourse has turned into religious fervor because we think that's the answer. And we can make it the way it's supposed to be with just the right regulations and people in charge and all this stuff. So what does it mean then? Well, this is where all these lined-up relationships come up, right? We're made for relationships with God, reconciled relationship with God. We're made for relationship with each other. We're not using, hurting, abusing one another. We're loving and caring and seeking the good of the other above ourselves. Like, that's what we're made for. We're made for a, a relationship with the world where the, where the creation just kind of responds to us. There's this beautiful picture in um, C.S. Lewis wrote, a, wrote a, a, a trilogy that's lesser known than Narnia. It, it's, his, it's his space trilogy. And, this, and in Paralandra, which is kind of the middle book, it's probably the most famous of those, uh, of those three books, he writes, it's, it's about um, another planet where another Adam and Eve are kind of going on. And, and in that book, you, Adam, Adam and Eve, they're not called that, but this is what their characters are. Um, they kind of speak to creation and it responds to them. It's this beautiful picture whether that's what actually happened or not. It's this beautiful imagine, imagined picture of what it would be for, like, for us to go out into the world and to not do all this labor and find thorns and thistles instead of fruit and roses, right? And then finally, a relationship that's reconciled even with ourselves. They're supposed to all be lined up, but when we broke relationship with God, the primary relationship, it disjointed everything else too. It just broke them all apart. And you know this. You know this. Like, the, the, our sin has broken everything. With God, it's obvious. Like, you're in a church. I don't, I don't think I need to explain that a ton. But with each other, probably also pretty obvious, right? If you have friends, you're married, you got family, like, you know that that happens. With the world, this is why we vacillate between this victim mentality where we have no agency and everything is, we can't change anything, everything is just being done to us, and a God complex where we think if only everyone would listen to me and give me enough money, I could make the world right. Like we vacillate between our relationship with the world is even broken. And then ourselves? I mean, do we need to talk about the numbers on depression and medication and anxiety today? And that's true not just in the world, frankly, but in the church as well. 
And so to work for the flourishing of others is to do what we can to see those relationships realigned. Relationship with God, yes. Relationship with the world, yes. Relationship with others, yes. It's about, it's about pushing back the darkness in our community, whether that darkness is unbelief, broken homes, an overloaded foster system, human trafficking, hunger, abortion, whatever. Sometimes, frankly, we do that just by, viewing, just by changing the way we view life, right? Here's what I mean. Maybe we change the way we view our neighborhood. That our neighborhood is not just the cool place we live because it had a, a low HOA uh, and, and it has a pool and, you know, all this fun stuff. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we are in that neighborhood because God sent us there on our exile to seek the flourishing of those people in that neighborhood as best we can. That's the place where we're there to help push back darkness. Maybe we view our workplace, not just as the place that we, we're in so that we can pay our bills and it's really fun and exciting at times and boring and terrible at other times, but, but maybe it's the place and it's an environment that God has placed us to see darkness pushed back, both in our office, but with our clients and the things we do. Our schools and the schools where our kids are, Maybe those are also places that Jesus has placed us to see darkness pushed back and to see people flourishing. Can I tell you something? I think not getting this is why many of us in this room, and you don't have to raise your hands because I know you don't want to admit this, why many of us here are bored to death with our faith. Because if being a Christian is just about getting a get-out-of-hell-free card and getting our theology right, no wonder you're bored. I am too, if that's it. But if it's about being on mission to see the kingdom of God advanced, which means darkness pushed back, people's lives made better, and in a plethora of different ways, in every little sphere that you've been placed in, that it's not an accident, that God has you there for a reason. You get to join Jesus on mission to see the world renewed. How awesome is that? That's individually. Listen, this is true for the church also. See, the needs of the city, like we're in Orlando. Like I came from a town of 30,000 people. That's half the size of the college across the street. The needs of the city are massive. Just even this little section. We'll just call East Orlando. We'll just call it a little quadrant. Massive, way bigger than us individually, and way bigger than just this church. But the good news is, Jesus is not asking us to flourish people. Did you notice that? In the letter, he doesn't say, go flourish Babylon. He says to seek it, to pray for it, not you go do it. Because you can't, if you tell him to go do it, we're lost, just like we talked about last week. We can't do everything. That doesn't mean to either do nothing or to try to do everything just a little I don't know, let me throw out some, listen, okay, here's one, our, our church, this church already has a relationship with um, Thrive Orlando, okay, we already have a relationship with Thrive Orlando, um, what if, instead of being a place where we just give money to pro-life causes, that instead, we actually say, what we're going to do is we're going to commit 
We're going to commit ourselves, our time, our treasure, our energies, maybe even our homes to seeing women supported who make the difficult decision, because it's easy to do the other, but who make the difficult decision to keep that baby. We're going to support and come alongside them and, and really like walk alongside them and help them to flourish as best we can. Not just throw money at stuff. That's not flourishing. That's being not flourished and rich. It's not the same. To come alongside and, and to be a place that supports and cares for women who make that difficult choice. Or said, yeah, we're, we're so sold into this concept that we're going to do everything we can as a congregation to make sure every adoptable child in this city is adopted. That's just an idea. I don't have the answers for what that's going to look like as UPC. We'll work on that together. But I do know that God is calling UPC to work to push back the darkness here in East Orlando. Here's the question. How are you supposed to do that? Like, how, how do you, how do we, when I say like we're going to commit and do all this stuff, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, Rick, I got a job. I coach Little League. I got this. I'm schooling my own kids. Like, we're, we're, talk, we're thinking like this kind of thing. We're like, Rick, I've been retired for a number of years. Like, I, I don't have the energy to do this or the ability. See, in reality, this asks a ton of us. But it also asked a ton for people in Jeremiah's day. Didn't it? Here's the reality. You and I will never be truly free to work for the flourishing of others until we believe that our flourishing has already been accomplished by another. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther used to talk about the fact that, that sin and our, our brokenness has, has kind of turned us in on ourselves. What that really means is that that means we always seek our own good. <laughs> we do. Because if we don't, who will? The concept of looking out for number one is not some like new thing. That's been the case since the garden. That's why Adam said, that woman you gave me, like that's where all that comes from. We look out for ourselves. The reason that you and I struggle to even consider living for the sake of others is because we think we have to live for us. Our time, our money, our energy all tends to flow in that direction. Even for many of us, the good things we do can often just be another way of trying to bargain with God or make ourselves look good. And sometimes it could be to just ease our guilt. So you see, like, so long as our relationships are still fundamentally out of joint, we'll never be able to really work for the flourishing of others. But this is where Jesus comes in. Because God doesn't call us to do something that he doesn't provide for. You see, if you've been given the perfect status of Jesus before God, by faith, not by, by action, by, by simply he offers it and you receive it. If, you, if you've been given that perfect status, you don't need to seek your own. And you can truly love people instead of using them to prove yourself. If he's truly restored you to the God that you were made for, then your time and your treasure 
can be devoted to pushing back darkness because you don't have to see it as the way that you're going to finally get satisfied. You've already been satisfied. And if Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell for you, then you can risk much without fear of your safety or security because he has already secured it. He secured it by grace in his very resurrection. And what that does is that allows us to be turned back right side out right side out so that our posture is not what can i get what can i get from the world what can i get from this city what can i get from my neighbors what can i get from my homeowners association nothing what what can i what can i get it's about how can i bless because there's nothing that the world can give you if jesus has already given you everything If Jesus has given you everything, that there is nothing the world can offer you. It it can't give you anything. So we can seek the flourishing of others and thus flourish ourselves. In In their flourishing, we will flourish. So what does it mean to be missional? In a real sense, it means seeking to see God's kingdom realized. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven, as we prayed. And that means full souls, yes. It means full hearts, yes. It means full bellies, yes. It means reconciled relationships with God, with our neighbors and marriages and even ourselves. And it means pushing back the darkness in ourselves and in the world. And the amazing thing is, just like last week, just like last week, God's not asking us to go get to it. Make this happen. Send me the status report tells us to seek and to pray because he is the one that's out doing it. And he invites us to get to come along with him. As he works for these very things. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you know our hearts. You know that our hearts, even, even, uh, even our best motives are mixed but if we were looking for our motives and our actions to make us right before God then we're in trouble but the beauty Lord that you have given the the beauty of the gospel that you've given us is that you are the one that makes us right before God and that because you've made us right before God then there's all of our deepest needs have been met and we can just give ourselves to the world we can work to see our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, our families. We can work to see them flourish. So we ask, Lord, that you would bring shalom to East Orlando. That you would bring those reconciled relationships to our very neighborhoods to our schools, to our businesses, to the places we live, work, and play. And we ask that you would give us insight, wisdom, and vision on how we might be able to seek those things even as we pray for them. And Jesus, thank you that you go before us to make the rough places plain and the crooked places straight. That you 
are making all things new. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.